This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to the Triple Vision podcast, your window into the past, present, and future of blindness in Canada. This podcast has been made possible by a generous contribution from T-Base Communications and the support of the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. The mission of Triple Vision is to gather and document previously untold Canadian blindness narratives, one lived experience at a time, and to make our history accessible and universally known. Hello, and welcome to Triple Vision. I'm David Best, and with me is Hannah Levitt in giving the interviews for this episode. Unfortunately, Hannah's not able to be with us today to do the final recording for this episode. She's off on an important assignment. But I do have with me Peter Field, who is the lead of the Pandora Project. And I'm going to ask Peter, what is our topic for today, Peter? Hi, David. Yeah, happy to set up uh, this third in a series of advocacy. Listeners who have heard the last two podcasts will know that we started off in 1908 with Philip E. Layton and um, the founding of the Montreal Association for the Blind. Then we sort of fast forwarded to 1975 and talked to John Ray about the Boost organization in Ontario and some of the early advocacy efforts. Now we're going to sort of jump ahead, uh, not so far ahead, but to say 1980, 1982 with the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. We're going to hear from two guests who were there on the ground and pushed really hard for persons with disabilities to be included in the charter. So not to steal uh, their thunder, but it was uh, thanks to efforts of people like David Leposky, who we're gonna hear first, and Yvonne Peters, who will come after that to talk about why it was that it was the 11th hour that people with disabilities were in fact included in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Today, we're going to continue our exploration of advocacy. And with us, we have David Leposky, who graduated from Osgoode Law School in 1979 and went on to get a master's in law at Harvard and came back to Canada and received the Order of Canada and the Order of Ontario. So, David, I think we have a very impressive resume and could go forever on what you've done. But what we're interested in is hearing your experience as an advocate and what the most outstanding events were and the most highlighted achievements you think we've made over the last several decades. I'd like to really suggest four things that I've been involved in uh, that are worth um, thinking about. But underlying all of them is a transformation of people with vision loss and people with disabilities from thinking of themselves as recipients of services uh, or recipients of charity or service from charities to rights holders, to people who have a deserve and are entitled to equality, who are entitled to accessibility, who are entitled to full inclusion, and whether they're doing it together with others or on their own, can make a difference uh, fighting for that equality. So I've had a privilege being one of those people. And the four areas that I thought would be helpful to highlight uh, were the fight in 1982 to get disability included in the Charter of Rights, 
the fight in Ontario in 1982 to get a disability included in the Ontario Human Rights Code, the fight to get the Accessibility Ontarians with Disabilities Act, Act passed in 2005, and since then to get try to get the government to effectively implement it, um, and related to that other legislation like the Accessible Canada Act that was passed in uh, in a couple of years ago in 2019, and and also the fight to get the Toronto Transit Commission to get uh, audibly announced subway, bus, and streetcar stops across the board. So if we were included partially in the 1977 Act, why why was there such a resistance to inclusion in the Charter? Well, our experience uh, over the years doing disability advocacy on a multiplicity of fronts from then to now is that even when equality initiatives are undertaken, we're often left out. So when they proposed the Charter of Rights, it included an equality rights provision, but that provision did not include disability. In fact, it was initially worded in ways where courts couldn't read it in. When uh, human rights laws were first introduced and passed in the 60s, disability was not included. Right now, um, the uh, sort of equality flavor of the year is called Equity, Diversity, and, and Inclusion, or EDI. It's all over governments, and school boards, and colleges, and universities, and corporate Canada, and so on. And major initiatives, it's, 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 it's a growth area. And that's great. But yet again, uh, disability is either not included at all, or we're only uh, treated as uh, to lip service, and equity for some, as we said to the con- uh, as I said to the Constitution Committee in Ottawa back in 1980, equality for some is equality for none. So it's important whenever equality initiatives are undertaken that people with disabilities are are fully included and equally included. Mr. Chairman. The biggest problem, very often, with being handicapped is often not blindness or the handicap. The biggest problem, very often, resulting from blindness or other handicap is the well-intentioned cruelty which many of the public unintentionally or unknowingly impose upon us. The pity, patronization, discriminatory attitudes, and condescension which handicapped persons know to be an unfortunately almost non-stop component of their life is in fact the biggest problem they face. The problem that is confronted by the majority of handicapped persons is the fact that the public is not often ready to accept us as equals. Not by malevolence, but by uninformed or misinformed attitudes, underestimating our capabilities by fear of handicapped persons, uh, you might call it the, quotes, freak syndrome, not perceiving a handicapped person as just another normal human being. And this is manifested in several ways, many of which are, are frightening and are, har- and are harmful. Why should we be included in Section 15? Why are handicapped people entitled to equality before the law and to the equal protection of the law? To begin with, I'm sure you all come to the conclusion yourself and you've heard from other groups, as the clause is presently drafted, it is unarguable, 
unquestionable that handicapped persons are not entitled to equality before the law. By this exclusion, it perpetuates in our Constitution an attitude which, as I've mentioned, is prevalent in society. Some notion of handicapped people as second-class citizens, people who need to be taken care of, not given independence, uh, protected, not given the opportunity of equality. Inclusion in Section 15 would be, uh, for the handicapped would be consistent with what is the supposed intention or the stated intention of the government with respect to the Charter of Rights. Moreover, if the purpose of the Equality Clause is truly to grant equality, one must look at its wording. It provides equality for certain minorities. In other words, it involves equality for some. And equality for some, I, sub I submit, really means equality for none. It means that there are two levels in society, one level of people who are entitled to equality and one level who aren't. And when you have two distinct classes such as that, the term equality has been stripped of its meaning and rendered more of an illusion. Accordingly, if equality is the goal, then it must be equality for all. And all must include, we submit, uh, handicap. In conclusion, I'd like to make the following points. Our concern is that there is a, a, a danger of misleading people if the Charter does not include the handicap. There is a danger that people will believe that in Canada, under such a provision, egalitarian liberties are truly safeguarded. There is equality for all. Without handicap inclusion, such is not the case. And it is not only unfair to handicapped persons to deny them equality, but it is a risky venture for the public to be misled into the believing that all minorities are protected when they are, in fact, not. So is cost uh, usually the reason cited for not moving on these initiatives? Well, let's, let me tell you a couple of things. First, typically no re reason is cited at all. And it, it, so it's not like somebody sat down and said, let's do an equity, diversity, and inclusion strategy at the CBC to diversify our coverage. Um, and let's make sure disability is not included. It's just that they did an equity, diversity, inclusion strategy, and it's pretty much all about uh, racialized people and indigenous people. But when CBC did a significant effort at expanding its coverage in those areas, um, it has so often left disability out, or if disability gets covered, and it sometimes does, it's very much, again, uh, a, uh, a kind of a second class amount of coverage and amount of attention. So, so you asked me the question, is there costs? I, you know, no one raised costs there. Uh, it's just, that's the way they do it. But it, that's the way it happens for us always. The, the barriers we face aren't because somebody sat down and calculated them because the, the cost of including us for the most part is negligible and where it is, there is a cost, it's a cost worth paying. But the cost of not including and providing inclusion and accessibility for people with disabilities, that is much, much higher. Do you find that these uh, consumer groups or advocacy groups are very effective in today's modern way of pushing legislation through and getting things done? Absolutely. These kind of grassroots movements are absolutely vital. And uh, the ODA committee led the campaign that got the 
Disabilities Act passed. There was no cross-disability movement then effect, uh, uh, campaigning for it. There wasn't even a consensus in the disability community that we needed the legislation. That was a major decade-long effort to bring people together, come up with a shared agenda, and get government to pass it. Indeed, get the parliament to pass it, the legislature pass it unanimously. To me, the biggest victory is when I hear an individual with vision loss or uh, a parent of a kid with a disability uh, or somebody with some other disability who decides to take these issues on themselves. They don't need an organization. Uh, They might just take out their smartphone and video a barrier, post it on social media, and suddenly it goes viral. Next, you know, the media are covering it and it gets a ton of attention. But I am absolutely delighted to see how many people are prepared to not just sit back and complain to themselves or others, but are prepared to get active. Because individuals can make a huge difference. We have three huge advantages from compared to like where I started uh, personally in the late 70s and early uh, 80s. The first is we have all this technology. You can do it from home. You can do it on social media. You can do it on your smartphone uh, and so on. The second thing is we have rights. We have rights under the Charter of Rights. We have rights under every human rights code. We want rights under the Accessible Canada Act that the federal government's doing a very poor job of implementing in a timely way. We have rights under provincial accessibility laws like the AODA in Ontario, the BC one, the Manitoba one, the Newfoundland one. Uh, the Nova Scotia one, all of which started with the Ontario one, all of which are got sluggish implementation happening. And the third reason we're way ahead is that we have generations of new people with disabilities, young people who've grown up with disabilities, people who didn't have a disability and now have acquired one, who have been born or acquired a disability in the time after we got these rights. And all of them are more rights aware than ever. And they need to turn that into action. Well, I'd sure like to thank you, Anne, for all your efforts on the path of certainly low vision folks and other disabled people for all your efforts. That's amazing. If people want to learn more about any of this, you can go to the AODA Alliance website and sign up to get our email updates because whether you're in Ontario or elsewhere, you can learn lots more. That's www.aodaalliance.org. Thanks so much for including me in this, and it's great you're doing this podcast. Our next guest is Vaughn Peters, who's been advocating for blindness rights since she was in kindergarten. So welcome to Triple Vision, Yvonne, and you can tell us that story, if you like, and a little bit about your career in disability rights. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me, and and what fun to start off with, uh, kind of one of my favorite stories. Uh, So I went to a private kindergarten in those days. That's how it worked many, many years ago. And uh, I was totally blind at that time. And while I knew that things were different for me, I didn't think it was, I didn't think too much about it. And neither did um, my fellow students. We just sort of worked around it. And I didn't really see a problem with it. Until um, one day, because I had such a great teacher, another little blind boy came, who's not a little blind boy anymore, and I do know him, and he's a lovely man, but he came um, to our kindergarten, and uh, 
like most kids, he was probably fooling around, wiggling around. I don't know. But anyway, we were sitting on folding chairs and he fell off his folding chair. All of a sudden, my kindergarten teacher declared that blind children would no longer be allowed to sit on the folding chairs. And I was just really struck when she said that. I was mad, actually, because I thought, I didn't fall off the chair. Why are you, you know, lumping me in with this particular situation? And so I guess you could say, in many ways, that was my first introduction to stereotyping and, you know, negative or, or you know, um, assumptions about what blind people can and can't do. So, so that that's my my little story. And as as far as I can remember, at least it's the way I like to think about it. I don't think I got off that folding chair. I think I I stuck with it. So, Yvonne, can you tell us a little bit about your advocacy experience when you were working with the COPO, the Coalition of Provincial Organizations of Handicapped, and what role that had in the uh, Charter of Rights? I began uh, my career as a social worker um, and thought that that's where I wanted to go, but ended up taking a class in social policy, which really introduced me to, you know, the many injustices in our society. So that put me on a path to uh, being interested in human rights. And I actually was able to get a job um, at the Saskatchewan Human Rights Commission. And while, you know, in that job, I learned about um, the national organization called COPO and the work it was doing on behalf of disability rights. And uh, I had been doing some work in Saskatchewan for the Voice of the Handicapped. And uh, so suddenly they sent me off to the national scene, which was really exciting and interesting. And, you know, at that time in the late 70s, early 80s, there was a lot of energy and interest and motivation to actually get the rights of people with disabilities legally recognized through human rights legislation. And then um, in the late 1970s in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So that became a really important issue for us. And we spent, you know, I think a good two to three years just flat out lobbying for inclusion in the Charter. So it took a lot of effort. Um, There are many reasons, I think, many efforts that contributed to the very last minute inclusion of disability in the Charter. But at the 11th hour, we were successful. And uh, that was a huge monumental and symbolic achievement for uh, Canadians with disabilities. So we know that um, the Human Rights Act was passed in 1977. In your perspective, why do you think that in that act, uh, people with disabilities were included, but in the 1982 charter, there was such a challenge to include them. Why do you think that was? I don't think anybody has the precise answer, but we we have speculated and maybe have some some idea of what was going on. I think first and foremost, we have to remember the idea of rights was a very new concept when it came to disability at that time. We, we came from a, you know, an era where disability was thought of more as an object of charity, as people who required care, treatment, guidance, even institutionalization. And we were not thought of as, as people who experienced barriers or discrimination. And, you know, there was this idea that, well, nobody would intentionally discriminate against 
a person with a disability. We, we are kind people. So it was, um, it was, I think, a new concept for people. And, and so we understood, you know, Canadians understood the damage caused by discrimination based on race, on religion, on uh, ethnic origin, and so on. But I don't think they could wrap their heads around discrimination on the basis of disability. So I think ignorance was one factor. Um, I think another reason that um, we we learned about, and, and this was a member of COPO who had a very candid, off-the-record conversation with a representative of justice who confessed that there was some, some worry, some, some fairly significant worry, that including disability would bankrupt the country because we were expensive people. And we would want everything changed to meet our needs, and that would be very costly. And the example he cited, and this was his example, is that blind people would want all phone books translated into Braille. I understand that you served as the uh, Human Rights Commissioner for the province of Manitoba. Can you share a little bit of the highlights of that time in your career? Yes, I I was on the uh, Board of Commissioners for about um, maybe 13 or 14 years. It's really an important uh, place to be because um, in our province, the commissioners determine which cases, you know, have merit, which will, uh, you know, which settlements are, are, are acceptable, and then which cases uh, need to be sent on to an adjudicator. So the work itself was was, you know, I think very important and part of what I really care about. I had the the honor and privilege of being the chair of the commission um, for several years. While I was there, we had two uh, situations that, you know, I think really demonstrated how a commission, if they're motivated, can bring about systemic change. We're all familiar with with the, um, you know, pedestrian crossings and lights that tell you when it's safe and not safe to cross, but they're generally um, indicated by visual uh, light. Uh, One of our members of our community, Ainley Bridgman, brought a complaint to the Human Rights Commission saying that uh, audio, uh, that pedestrian signals ought to be, ought to be equipped with audio signals so that blind people or people who can't see the lights uh, easily would know when it was safe to cross. And, you know, it was a little bit of a, a discussion at the commission table because people weren't sure it was reasonable. Um, you know, and, and we heard had the city saying to us that it's impossible in our frigid climate to find equipment that would work. They would be too noisy. They would be too distracting. But at, at any rate, the, uh, the commission did take the complaint. And the city of Winnipeg, um, to their credit, uh, came finally to the table and negotiated a settlement. And what they did is they proposed uh, a, a timetable, um, a timetable for how each, um, you know, um, pedestrian crossing would be equipped with an audible signal. So it was a really great opportunity for the commission to bring about um, systemic change that really affected the daily lives of those, those of us who are blind and and like to travel independently. Can you tell us how well you think the Accessible Canada Act is going to serve the needs of disabled people in Canada? There's there's pros and cons, and you probably know this. I mean, it's great that we have an act that's actually producing specific regulations uh, in various federal sectors 
that clearly identify what accessibility means, that clearly identify how to remove barriers, that clearly set up plans and involve people with disabilities. What's not to like about that? My worry, though, I always, I always have a little bit of worry when we start layering human rights legislation. So we have the Canadian Human Rights Act. We have the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. We have the, you know, we've ratified the Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities. Do we really need more legislation? Um, maybe, maybe we need uh, the Act because it's very specific and detailed. But, you know, my big worry, I was just looking the other day, and it looks like eventually when all the regulations are in place, that rather than taking a complaint to the Human Rights Commission, you will have to take your complaint to the relevant body that is enforcing the regulation. So if it's against transportation, you go to the Canadian Transportation Agency. If it's uh, broadcasting or television or telecommunications, you go to the CRTC. So, you know, they're the people you're complaining about and they're the ones you complain to and they're the ones administering the admin, the regulations. Now, I think there's a connection to the Human Rights um, Act. Uh, there is. But, you know, my, my worry is when we went to one body, the Canadian Human Rights Commission, with a complaint, we were able to develop a, a body of jurisprudence that set out the legal principles and concepts that would govern how complaints would be adjudicated, what constitutes discrimination, what is appropriate systemic remedy, a number of really important legal concepts. I don't know how that's going to work when you um, have what they call a no wrong door approach, which means you can file a complaint with multiple agencies. Who's going to ensure consistency? Who's going to ensure that that the remedies are systemic and not just individual remedies. So my worry, are we getting, yeah, are we getting into a two-tiered rights system where anybody else can file a complaint with the Human Rights uh, Commission, but if you have a disability, you need to first look around and find out if there's anybody else that should be taking your complaint. You know, I I worry. I worry about layering. I wor- I, I just think, why don't we just give human rights commissions the resources they need to implement human rights and enforce them? You know, be proactive. Well, thank you so much, Yvonne, for taking the time to share with us and let our listeners you know bet. about I'm your happy experience. happy to contribute. So, Peter, that was a very interesting interview with David and Yvonne. I have found over the last few episodes of advocacy that there is so much to cover, and we've barely covered the the tip of the iceberg when we talk about the advocacy work that's gone on over the last several decades. What do you think our listeners may have learned from our information so far? Well, definitely, David, it's been a very rapid tour of advocacy uh almost a hundred years or more of advocacy packed into three episodes. And there's definitely more to tell there. Well, I think I'll share what I have learned uh, from from this podcast in particular. Two things. Um, The first thing is the fact that change just appears to be so incremental. Um, That push in 1982 for, uh, for people with disabilities to be included in the charter, all the efforts that that took, 
then another sort of 40 years almost before there's an Accessible Canada Act. And it just seems when I listen to David and Yvonne that this is just kind of endemic in terms of our community. And I really don't know of any other communities in, in Canada where change has been so incremental. I mean, I may, I may think of the Indigenous community, for example, where indeed it has taken a long time to get focus on those issues. And finally, we see now that there's a lot of focus on this issues, the, those issues. And I just wondered, when will be the time for the, the disability community to arrive and us not to have to push so hard? So that, that's the first thing. And then the other thing was David's comments about, well, this isn't about money, uh, according to David. Change is not slow because uh, concerns that this will cost too much. David said change is slow because it's just forgotten about. So those are my observations and I'm curious about what listeners will think. In our next podcast, we're going to start a series on education, and we're going to hear from two individuals. The first is Leo Bissonnette, who's going to talk about education in the province of Quebec. Quebec has done things uh, quite differently, as we started to learn, than the rest of Canada. So it'll be interesting to hear what Leo uh, says about how education uh, happened in Quebec. And we're going to hear from Diana Brent. Diana was a student at the Jericho School for the Blind uh, when it first became that school for the blind uh, in, uh, in Vancouver. At one point, Jericho included deaf students and blind students, and uh, in 1956 uh, was separated, and uh, at that point, Diana was a student in Jericho in 1956. So we're going to hear about two uh, schools for the blind as we start this series. Uh, in Quebec and in Vancouver. So stay tuned and join us next time. Triple Vision is made possible by the generous support of T-Base Communications and the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. Triple Vision is produced in collaboration with Accessible Media Inc., AMI-audio. Sam Robinson is the technical producer with the assistance of Jacob Schmansky and Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. Finally, we would like to thank you for joining us on this journey. If you would like to reach out to the Triple Vision team with questions or comments, you can reach us by email at triplevision21 at gmail.com or reach us on Twitter at triplevision21.